God's grace taught me how to live. God's grace taught me how to die. Those were my mother's last words of spiritual advice to the family, spoken just a few hours before she died and entered into the glory of Jesus Christ. And no doubt, for me, not having that much experience with death, the situation was, was certainly alarming. My family were all gathered in the hospital room, and it didn't even seem like my mother was conscious. She was lying in the bed, and she was struggling to breathe that that labored breathing that happens oftentimes right before death. And the alarms on the machines were going off, and with my dad's permission, the nurses came, and she was treated with morphine. But then all of a sudden, she seemed to gain consciousness. And in a moment of lucidity and with great awareness, I think that her earthly course had come to an end. She said, God's grace taught me how to live. God's grace taught me how to die. And though in that moment that situation was incredibly unraveling, those words of hope and confidence, along with her example, provided such courage and confidence. Because she was so courageous and confident, not ultimately in herself, but in Jesus Christ, her Lord and Savior. And so her words and her example have provided so much help to me as I too try to live and pray that I would even live and die for and die in Jesus Christ. Did you know that my mother's confidence and courage is the testimony of actually countless Christians who have faced suffering and death just like their Christ? I wonder for you today if you are discouraged in fear in need of confidence and courage as you look out and see what lies before you. Well, by God's grace, I pray this morning, as we look at the inspired word of God, that we would indeed find help for our need, and that in our uncertain times, that we would be steadied by the example and the words of Paul the Apostle and his last words in Scripture as he faced suffering and death with, with courage and confidence, just like is Christ. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, and we are in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. And if you're joining with us for the first time in our book of 2 Timothy, or this letter written by Paul the Apostle, uh, let me give you some background. It was written, once again, by Paul the Apostle, and he was writing to a man, a young pastor, really his son in the faith, and his name was Timothy. This was, again, Paul's last letter that we know of. And so it is, it is filled with like exhortations and encouragements, even personal reflections and examples. And in some ways, Paul passes on the torch to the next generation. And, and this letter is all the more moving, given that Paul wrote while imprisoned for the gospel. It's the same gospel, actually, that he calls Timothy to continue in and to preach, and to protect, and to pass on. And as one who had fulfilled his ministry, Paul calls on Timothy to do the exact same, no matter the circumstance, whether suffering or opposition. He calls him to fulfill your ministry. We know that there was great opposition and persecution at the time. There was troubles from outside of the church as the emperor was rounding up Christians, at least in Rome, and uh, persecuting them very severely. 
We know, too, that from, from the letter, we see very clearly that, that there were troubles within the church as false teachers had arisen up and were really just trying to lead people astray, teaching them false things, teaching lies about who Jesus Christ was and the hope that is in him. And they were doing so, really, First Timothy says, to really line their own pockets with the money of the poor and the vulnerable. And so Paul, being the father in the faith that he is, he writes to Timothy, providing courage and confidence in Jesus Christ. Again, our passage today is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, and it follows on the heels of what is really the climax of the letter uh, where Paul charges Timothy to press on. I'll go ahead and start reading from chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says there, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then here's our passage for today. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. It's clear that Paul here encourages Timothy to preach the word, to fulfill his ministry. And he reminds him there of so many different reasons, if you notice that in verses 1 through the end of our passage. It's because he serves the king, because he's been charged with the king, by the king. He's been entrusted by the king with the very gospel message. And so he is to herald the king's word, even if people disregard him and the word of the king. And then speaking so personally, helping Timothy to fulfill his mission, he writes there in our verses 6 to 8, sort of reflecting on his own life and ministry and the grace of Jesus Christ in it all. It's almost as if, thinking back to the introduction, it is almost as if Timothy and us, we, are brought into the room, the cell, where Paul is on his so-called deathbed. And here we hear him and we see our own father in the faith give his last charge to find courage in Jesus Christ. From these reflective and personal words found in 6 to 8, Paul wants Timothy first, if you're taking notes today, he wants Timothy first to have courage in and for Christ. To have courage in and for Christ. The second thing, to be faithful to Jesus Christ. To be faithful to Jesus Christ. Third, to long for the righteousness that comes in Christ. To long for the righteousness that comes in Christ. And then number four, all for the love of Christ. All for the love of Christ. And really, this is remember, this is not just for Timothy. Paul was writing here in view of all of the church. We know that other letters were to be read to the whole entire church. So really, what he encourages Timothy here, he encourages us to do right now. Now, this morning, we cover the first two points. Next week, we're going to cover the next two points or the last two points. So this morning, we look first, we look first at 
the fact that Paul wants Timothy and us to have courage in and for Christ, no matter the situation. He wants us to have courage in and for Christ, no matter the situation. Look at Paul's bad situation there in verse 6. He says there, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This language of being poured out as a drink offering comes from the Old Testament. You can find it in, in Exodus, for example, where God's people were to offer up drink offerings poured out to God as these acts of worship. Well, did you notice here that Paul says that he is already being poured out? So this is not future. It's not, not something that's, that is going to happen only. This is something that is happening right now. He's already being poured out. So he knows exactly where his imprisonment under Emperor Nero would end. It would end off in the shedding of his own blood. He was eventually executed, beheaded in fact, for being a Christian under the Emperor Nero. And the way he viewed it, that is his own life, his own martyrdom, was a sacrifice to God. He's a great example of what it looks like to offer up his entire life as a living sacrifice, his whole entire life in his body as a living sacrifice to God, which is what he writes in Romans chapter 12. Now, he's not saying here that the Christian should have like a death wish somehow. We should go out and seek death for Christ as the number one priority, as if that is the definition of godliness or anything like that. But clearly for Paul, living for Jesus Christ included living for him in and until death, through death. This was the situation he was in, which is why he writes, the time for my departure has come. This word departure, it's like loosening off of a, a boat that goes off into the seas. It's kind of used as a metaphor for death. It was a common metaphor, but that's basically how he sees himself. As soon he will be loosed from this world and he will go to be with Jesus Christ. You know, in some cultures, it's supposed to be bad luck to even speak of death. Even in worldly thought, there's this idea of not voicing bad thoughts, lest the universe return to you bad circumstances. And, and some people, you know, when we become Christians, we can bring this thinking inside of the church, and there we are taught to, to let go of that thinking and then learn to think more biblically about all sorts of things. Well, this passage helps us do just that. Note that Paul has absolutely no problem talking about his very own death. He's not given to positive affirmations to the universe, lest the, the universe somehow return negative situations. He's not given to any superstition and fear because he lives, why? In the truth of the gospel. Here's Paul's reality. Let me, lead you, let me, let me read to you another verse that he wrote while in prison. This is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says so clearly for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which, which basically means that if he lives, great, I'm going to live for Jesus. And if I die, even I get to go be with Jesus. To die is gain, and I'm going to go be with him. So clearly, it's not bad luck to speak of death. And he's not worried about the universe returning bad circumstances to himself because his life, his mental state, his emotional state, his spiritual state, all of it is anchored in Christ and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what fuels Paul's courage here? As he looks at this dense death sentence, already in jail, already bound in chains for the truth of the gospel, what fuels Paul's courage is this Christ-driven courage that leads then, that eventually produces this boldness, this steadiness in the worst of circumstances. 
And so he is sober-minded in all things, all the way until the end. Now, when you read verse 6 there, don't assume that Paul was somehow hopeless. You know, don't read hopelessness into the passage there when he says, like, you know, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, you know, as if he is sad or hopeless again. You know, hopelessness doesn't move people to say, I have fought the good fight. Hopelessness doesn't move people to, in verse 8, look forward to this crown of righteousness. That's, that's hope language. Hopelessness doesn't lead people to say that even though everybody has abandoned me, verse 18, 418, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Only hope in Christ compels and sustains a person in death so that they would say with Paul, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Only hope in Jesus Christ provides this courage that Paul has to say, though the emperor, though coronavirus, though cancer or whatever may lay my body in the ground, Jesus is going to take it up again. That's courage, right? Not in ourselves finally, but in Christ who on the cross and in his resurrection conquered sin, death, and Satan, which is exactly what David was talking about earlier. If you remember from 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, you can go ahead and turn over there. It is Jesus, right? This courage from, comes from Christ who has, quote, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What good news in such bad circumstances? We today are obviously facing some bad circumstances as we deal with the pandemic of coronavirus. And from what I understand here in California, here in Los Angeles, we might see the peak of this virus along with the rising death count in two to three weeks from now. In our society, we may face devastation in ways we have not seen before, right? Generations of past maybe face this devastation, certainly in war. We now are facing it now in this virus, in this sickness, and in this death that it brings. And in seeing how our cities and how the world's nations have been brought to out their knees, our knees, maybe as we see news clip after news clip, we read update after update and even see visually how the hospitals in New York City are making makeshift morgues in their own parking lots. Or in Italy, as there are so many dying in their hospitals, they need not just a regular truck to haul away the deceased, but they need military-sized trucks to bring away the dead. We see even in Los Angeles, preparing for what might come. And so in some ways, maybe in, our, in your own heart, you too have been brought to your knees. I certainly don't talk about the death count and whatnot and recall these images to bring up fear or stir up fear in anyone. You know, if we look at the facts, we live in the facts, right? The vast majority of folks who get the virus get better. Praise the Lord for that. It's only a tiny percentage of folks who get the virus actually die from it. And, it is, and even amongst those, it is those who have pre-existing conditions. They seem to be uh, the ones who suffer the greatest. But nevertheless, we would be fools to not see man's limitations. 
the devastation, the pain, and the confusion that such sickness and death leaves in its wake. Even if we look from it from afar, in our cozy apartments, in our homes, on the television, or on the computer. And in the fear and anxiety that people have, we ought to wonder, right, where such death comes from. You ought to wonder, friend, because maybe you might struggle with the anxieties and fears that you have for your own loved ones, or maybe even the slightest fear over yourself. Wonder, we should wonder, where does this sin and this sickness and death come from? The Bible tells us it is on account of sin. The Bible tells us the reason. The Bible says that sin and death entered into the world after, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents. Meaning that sickness and death is not natural according to God's created order in the beginning. It was not the way that God originally designed the world to work. But it came in as a result of the sin of man. And it is a huge effect of sin. God created man to be in a perfect relationship with him. And at the beginning, where there was no sin, there was no sickness, there was no death. But on account of men's sin, then sin and sickness and death entered into the world. And so, friend, as you stare at these huge problems today in the face, as you look at sin and sin's effects in the face, and with all of that accompanying anxiety and worries, Again, maybe about your own health, maybe about the health of your parents and your grandparents, right? We, we know, right, something is wrong with this universe. We are bracing for death. Let me ask you, as you see all that, with all that anxiety, where is your courage? What is your courage in? I hope you see that for Paul, even in the worst of circumstances, for the Christian, Our courage is in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who, once again, abolished death and brought immortality and life to light through the gospel. This is the very reason why Jesus Christ came, why God sent his eternal son. He came to take care of the problem of sin and death through his cross and his resurrection. And that is exactly what the mission was. He came, he took on flesh, he lived a perfect life the life we could not, the life that the first Adam and Eve and all of us could not live. He lived perfectly. He lived righteously. He came to deliver us in his righteousness. And he went to the cross to die on the cross for our sins. As we had rebelled as Adam and Eve and everybody born in Adam and Eve since then, we have all sinned, the Bible says. We have earned for ourselves just condemnation. But see, where where we created the problem, God provides the solution. He sends his eternal son to live the righteous life we should have and to die the death that we should have. And so he comes to deliver us. That was his mission, to save us, to give us, to bring us into eternal life and then to redeem us. On the cross, he died bearing the wrath that we ourselves, his people, deserved. And then in his resurrection, we see there that sin, death, and Satan once and for all have been has been defeated. In his resurrection, we have the first blossom that indicates that there is life that is to come, the resurrection life that comes through his spirit, and then the physical resurrection that will come at his return. In his resurrection, all those who are in him will be raised 
with him. And so we have new life. More importantly, we have life with him and have life under him. This is the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus we can be forgiven of our sins and find this new spiritual life. David said earlier, he prayed earlier, that Jesus came not to set, not just to save us from things like the pandemic. We know that he's making the whole world new, this new creation, where there will be no more sin, sickness, and death. But we know what's even greater, that he has come to deliver us from eternal death, the death of the soul. And he does so by bringing us into this eternal life where we know forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God the Father, and life eternal. If you're watching and maybe you know yourself to be a non-Christian, maybe you're, you're exploring Christianity, let me be clear. This is, Jesus Christ is our only hope. Christ and his good news is what gives and supplies courage in the dire circumstances of the world, especially of sin, our own sin. Now, we're not saying here, when speaking about courage and whatnot, we're not saying that Christians never fear. We're not saying that Christians never worry or that we never get discouraged. Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in another letter that he wrote to the church of Corinth, he says, too, that he despaired of life in a difficult situation, in trials and in persecution. Think of Christ Jesus, too. Christ Jesus himself, as he, he knew that he would die on the cross. He wrestled, not sinfully, but he did wrestle. And eventually, we know what happens. We see so clearly that the whole entire time, his whole entire life, he was, in fact, faithful to God, even as he went to the cross. Now, as we see sin and its effects, though we may fear, though the Christian may fear, we know that death does not have the last word. Praise God. Christ has the last word. And you can know this same hope. You can know that death will not have the last word over your own life, that sin will not have the last word over your own life. If you would turn from your sins and believe on Jesus, you will be saved, Jesus says, and enter into this eternal life forever. Christ is the hope of every Christian. Just as Christ had saved Paul from condemnation, just as Christ had called Paul into the ministry, just as he had charged him to be the apostle, an apostle commissioned to preach the word of God to the nations, even suffering for the sake of his name, so Christ would deliver him. As the real hope, the real courage that defeats sin and death and Satan and fear of all of those things is Christ and the gospel. Christ who conquered sin, death, and Satan. Repent of your sins. And Jesus says, you will be saved. The coronavirus is one thing, right? Serious as it is. It really should cause us to reflect on the fact that we are not in control, that we are limited, and that we need a savior. It doesn't ultimately come through medicine because we know that even if there is a vaccine, something else will come up. Natural disaster will come up. There will be some sin in our lives, some pain in our lives that we don't know how to make sense of. We will, might even cause such pain and such sin and bring this upon other people. But there is forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what Paul trusted in. Not only can Christians in, be encouraged to have courage in Jesus Christ, the second point is he wants us, Paul wants us, God wants us to be faithful to Christ in the worst of circumstances. Point number two, Paul wants us to be faithful to Christ in the worst of circumstances. This passage here 
oozes, I guess you could say, it oozes faithfulness to Jesus Christ as Paul lives for Jesus, fulfilling his call upon his life. If you remember, Paul, thinking about bringing pain upon other people, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He hated the gospel. And then what happens? Christ Jesus appears to him in the book of Acts. You can read that. Christ appears to him, and he is struck to the heart. He comes to realize that as he was persecuting the church and trying, stamp, trying to stamp out the gospel, he was actually battling against God, if that's possible, the Lord God himself. And by the grace of God, Paul was convicted of his sin and his rebellion. And then, as he's saved, charges him to go to the ends of the earth with a mission to propagate once what he once persecuted, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. It's reflected in this letter. Let's look how it's reflected in this letter, this calling, this mission. If you look over to First uh, Timothy, sorry, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, he, he's called there an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle was one who was chosen to lay the foundation of the church by preaching the gospel. So there he's banded with the other apostles. And that's exactly what they do. And you, you look there in verse 9 of chapter 1. He's called us to a holy calling, that is to go and preach the gospel. In 111, he is appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher of this good news of Jesus Christ. And then in 417, in 417, look there. It says, the Lord strengthened him so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews to the ends of the earth, they might hear it. And it is to this mission of preaching the gospel of Christ that he gave himself. It is to Christ the King that he gave himself. You can read once again the book of Acts, which records Paul's missionary journeys of him traveling around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, planting churches. And then he even desires to go to the center of political power of the kingdom of man at the time. That is the city of Rome. That's actually where he's writing 2 Timothy, from the seat of power where Nero reigned over his kingdom. He lived for Jesus Christ and his church. We can again think about Paul's letter to the Philippians. Let's look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you look over at Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, or just listen if you don't have the scripture right there, Paul encourages the church uh, in living their Christian lives. He calls them to be blameless, to be holy, to live like Jesus, really, to represent him. And then he says there in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. And then here's my point, so that, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, there's that drink offering language again, similar to 2 Timothy. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And he's in jail too as he was writing that letter. He says there, right, even if, even if circumstances are such that I die for Christ and for those that Christ is saving, I rejoice as you complete my joy in Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at this Philippians passage and then 2 Timothy chapter 4, our passage today, if you look at them, you can flip back and forth. When you look at Philippians and then our passage, isn't it interesting that what Paul saw as a possibility then, he wrote Philippians before he wrote 2 Timothy, handful of years before. What Paul saw as a possibility then 
it has now become a reality in 2 Timothy. Even if I am to be poured out, Philippians, in 2 Timothy 4, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. His even if has become an already. And he's happy. He's joyful. Here's another passage, Acts 20, verse 24. I want you to go ahead and turn over there and uh, keep your hand also in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So you got Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. What's going on here is that Paul, you know, he's on his missionary journey and he stops by the city of Ephesus, which he had already been, he had already lived in, he had already planted a church there and ministered to the people there. And so as he stops by, he's calling to the elders of the church to say goodbye. It's an incredibly moving situation. I'd love to read it all, but uh, as due to time, we'll just look down there. Verse 24, look what he's departing. Look what he says as he's departing. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now, pause right there. And we might wonder, okay, Paul, well, tell us, what do you think is precious? What is of value? What is valuable to you? What is life worth living for? He says there, if only, if only, that's like purpose language, that's goal language. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You hear similar language as well? Acts chapter 20 and 2 Timothy chapter 4. What is the similar language? Well, the answer is, it's finish my course language. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. If you turn back there, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race or the course. I have kept the faith. You notice again in Acts chapter 20, written a decade, or uh, the events in Acts chapter 20, as recorded there, happened 10 years, most likely, uh, around 10 years before he wrote 2 Timothy. So you look at, Think back to right when he's saying goodbye to the elders there, Acts chapter 20. Paul's desire then to finish, if only I might finish the course, it has now become a reality as he writes this letter, all by the grace of God and the strength of Jesus Christ. The desire he had then had become a reality. What, what, can you imagine the joy and the, the satisfaction he must have had as he looked back, as he's writing that letter in prison to Timothy in, in Rome, as he looks back at his life, to seeing where he had come from. It's like, imagine, you know, you want to go on a hike and you know exactly where you want to go. You want to go to that particular peak. And so you set off on your journey. And then finally, eventually, after the many, many, many hours and the struggle, you get to the top. It's like almost like what, how Paul views his life, I think. He is at the top, at the peak, looking back turns around to see just how far he had come, not in a selfish way, not in a self-congratulatory way where you boast in yourself, where you get the glory, but in a, way, in a way where you know that with every single step and at every single bend and in all of the exhaustion and the tiredness and the difficulty of the switchbacks under the baking sun, you know that Christ was the faithful one, guiding and leading and sustaining and working in us the faithfulness to endure to the end. Exactly what Paul does. That's why he encourages Timothy to be strengthened in Jesus Christ in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. 
I think the way that Paul looks at his own life here is so helpful for us as Christians. What is life about for Paul? Well, frankly, life is not about living the longest life one could live with the least amount of inconveniences and the least amount of suffering and difficulties. To Paul, who and what was life about? To Paul, life was about the who and the what one lives for, no matter how many no matter no matter how many years he lived. It is about Christ and the gospel. So what should be of greatest concern to us as we seek to apply this passage, what should be of greatest concern to us, right, for all of us enlisted in this battle by Christ the King is not, is not living the longest amount of years one can, but it's about faithfulness to Jesus in no matter how many years he gives us. It's this kind of faithfulness that we are encouraged to continue in by our Father in the all. Right? And, and so me as a pastor at First Baptist Church and then with your other pastors, with Jason, with David, with Oscar, we, we as uncles in the faith to you, or maybe even fathers in the faith to you ourselves, it is this faithfulness that we want you to continue in. We want you to one day say with Paul, even in the worst of circumstances, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have, when he says that, I have kept the faith, right? You can think of this in two different ways. Like, I have preserved the faith, the body of truths that were entrusted to me. I've preserved them. And then not only that, though, but I have kept the faith as in I have persevered in believing. I think both of those, both of those ways, uh, both of those meanings are intended here. Both of them are legitimate. They could be, it could be understood this way. I think both are included here. But we want you as pastors, we want you to experience the reality to one day look the worst circumstances in your in the face and say, I have fought the good fight by the grace of God. I have finished the race, race, all depending upon the strength of Jesus. And I have kept the faith because God has preserved me all by the grace of God and the strength of Jesus Christ. But you know. You have to have godly desires and goals in order to experience this godly reality. You have to have godly desires and goals in order to experience the reality that Paul's experiencing right here. You cannot ever say, I have finished the Christian race, if you have no desire to run the race to begin with. We saw Paul's goals in Acts chapter 20, right? That passage there. What are his desires and goals? It is, if only, if only I may finish the race and testify to the gospel of the grace of God no matter what happens. Friends, I wonder what your if-onlys are, especially as you stare sin and sin's effects in the face. And if you are know your own heart well enough, you know that as you do that, you there are the stresses. And the anxieties that bubble to the surface just ever so slightly. If only, maybe you say as a Christian, thinking about the Christian race in this particular time, if only I could live comfortably and easy in this battle. I mean, that's, that's a lot of our if onlys, isn't it? We want to run the Christian race, but then we qualify it a little bit. But if you think about it, right? 
If we say, if only I could live the Christian life, but live comfortably and easily in this battle. But if you think about it, who goes into battle dragging your mattress on your back, pillow top and all? It's clear that the expectations are for Paul and for Jesus, right? The Christian life is a fight that needs fighting. I have fought the good fight. But though it will be challenging at times, friends, here's the wonderful news. There is true comfort found in the joy of Jesus Christ and trusting in him as you finish the course, no matter what occurs. Here's another if only, or, or we might say, you know, okay, maybe when it comes to fighting the fight, of faith, we think, I'll do it for Jesus. If only, if only, I can keep all of my relationships between my family and between my friends and between my children and my parents, if only I could keep them all and have them all bound up in a nice pretty bow, whether they bow the knee to Christ or not, then I can run the Christian race like that. Can you imagine Christ the King? The commander-in-chief, hearing a recruit say that. Of course, because he knows full well that you are either hostile to Christ or you are at peace with Jesus Christ. It's just what the Word of God says. Right? You see how confused we as soldiers might be if we desire a home with those who are hostile to Christ while claiming Christ. You see how confused we might be, how confused a soldier might be who desires to make a home with those who are hostile to Christ. While at the same time saying, we die for Jesus Christ, we follow Christ, we submit to Christ. What does it look like for a Christian to have fellowship with darkness while claiming Jesus Christ? The book of 1 John says that those people who walk in darkness, while claiming Christ, they say that they lie and they don't know the truth. To Paul, look, thinking about Paul and how he is encouraging to us, Paul knows that Christ is worthy. He is worthy of all allegiances because he is supreme. He is the one through whom all things were made, the one for whom all things were made. He is, in fact, as our passage says, the judge of the living and the dead. And when he returns to set up his kingdom in full, there will be a great separation. Those who are in him, he brings to eternal life with him. But those who are against him, he sends to eternal condemnation. And so Jesus, he gives time. While he hasn't returned yet, he said that he will. But he gives us time until his return. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body only. Those who might shun you. Those who might not love you because you claim Christ. He says, fear me. Know me. I'm over everything. I can destroy the body and the soul, and so I can save them as well. That's encouragement for us because he, he is a, as a, as a gentle and patient God calls us to turn from our sins as Christians, even who are tempted to make our home with those who deny Jesus Christ. He gives us time. So let me encourage you, Christian, to do that very thing. Repent of that sin. Repent of wanting to bring all of this baggage into the battle and the race that is set before us. You know, I get the desire to be at peace with those around you. You were created in God's image after all. 
God is a relational being, and so we too are relational beings. But in the kingdom of Christ, you want to know what true love is? True love for neighbor, true love for loved ones, does not mean keeping the peace between those to him and yourself. That's not ultimate peace. That's not even ultimate love by any means at all. True love means holding out Christ who makes peace through his very own blood and through his cross. He is the one who makes peace with sinners through the cross and lovingly calling your friends and your family to believe on him for salvation, even if that means they might shun you or they might disregard you or not love you, reject you. It's worth it. Why is that? Because you get the Savior. You get the love of God to pour out in your heart, as Romans chapter 5 says, for those who know Jesus Christ. And so even though everybody might abandon you, if you look over there at 2 Timothy chapter 4, you look what Paul says here. You look there, 416, 416, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Everybody. He has no friends. They all left him. They all deserted him. They all abandoned him. And he pleads with them, may it not be charged against them, like what Jesus said. But look what chapter, look what verse 17 says. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. Who is the one who stands by you? Even in the face of the worst circumstance, maybe, it might not even be coronavirus, it might be being rejected by your own family and friends. Who is it that stands by you? It is the Lord. And it is also the Lord's family. So if you find yourself, you know, thinking about thinking, you know, the greatest thing you could do is just to keep the peace in this battle. Uh, let me encourage you to turn in and throw yourselves at Christ's feet as he is the one who loves you. He is the one who has already made peace with you. Another one, another if only. Maybe some of us are saying, if only, if only I may run the race with no suffering and no death. Okay, but, but then maybe, right, we understand the Bible, right? We might say, okay, that's not very realistic, so let's just adjust these things, right? Let's just adjust it. How about we'll fight the fight of faith, but only if we can delay death until I'm at a good old ripe age, I'm soggy and wrinkly, and let's say for death, death might take us in the most painless way, the least painful way possible. So that this whole fighting thing doesn't cost me much pain or any inconvenience at all. I wonder how many of us might be thinking that right now, basically. But if you think about it, right, what kind of a love is one that pledges loyalty and love until it costs something? That's no love. And if it is anything of a love, it is a self-love. It is a selfish love. I mean, you know, just think about weddings. What makes Christian weddings at First Baptist Church and other gospel-preaching, gospel-believing churches so powerful is the pledge of selfless love. It's the pledge of a selfless love that points to the love of Christ, who being the quintessential loving leader, loves by, how does he love? He loves by not just going until there's a cost, but giving up himself to the death. You see this in the incarnation. He leaves what is rightfully his, the glory of the heavens, in order to give himself up to death through the ruthless breaking of his own body and the spilling of his own blood. And so he dies 
so that his people would live. You give me that king to ride into battle ahead of me, and that kind of love is worth dying for. That kind of love is worth living for. That is the love, the covenant loyalty, Christian, of your king, of Jesus Christ. And that love, again, is worth emulating. It is that king that you, Christian, have an honor, that we have an honor of fighting for, so that, why, he would receive the glory that he deserves, and so others would find freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the fear of death, forgiveness for their own sin, freedom from the wrath of God, freedom from the tyranny of sin, that we would come to know not hostility, but peace with our Creator, all because of the cross and His resurrection. No wonder the fight, though as difficult as it may be, Paul says is a good fight. It's incredible, isn't it? calls it a good fight because no matter how much bad he may bear no matter how many beatings he may bear or stones might be thrown at him or even the execution that he's about to face his own beheading he says it's good because it is for christ and his gospel it's the love of god and christ that compelled paul to fulfill this ministry and it is, in fact, the love of God that ought to compel us to faithfulness, even in the worst of circumstances. By the grace of God, right, he was able to finish and able to say there in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is why, as he himself knows that he physically is about to pivot, from this earthly life, life eternal, his mind is able to pivot so quickly there from seven to eight. Look what he does there. He's six and seven. He's looking at his circumstances, earthly circumstances, and then mentally he pivots to where his heart is already. You look there at verse eight, henceforth, now, now, what's to come? Now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Beautiful language right there. What a reward that Christ, as the good king that he is, chooses to bring his people into his glory, to experience the blessings of his kingdom into righteousness, a very moral quality that Christ is, that God is. We not only possess as it has been credited to us, we are counted righteous, but we are brought into this moral quality of goodness, of righteous, everything that Christ is. To conclude here, Christian, you know that you don't have the same ministry calling as Paul, right? To preach the gospel to the ends of the world as an apostle of the church, but yet Christ has still called you. He has still called us as Christians. Christ calls us all to testify to the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. He calls his whole entire church as ambassadors of his kingdom, as his representatives here in the sinful world to live holy lives, right? Reflecting his character as a citizen of his kingdom. You are to live for his glory and his goodness in everything that you do, being ready to offer the hope that we have in Jesus Christ to other people in love. This is the Christian course, the race. The words are interchangeable there. The course, the race, this is the battle. 
It is to bring the light of Christ into darkness as we wage the spiritual warfare on his behalf, not with real swords and spears, but with a gospel of love of Jesus Christ. Pray that you would desire what God desires of you. Pray that we all as a church would desire what God desires of us, that our if only would be that we would be faithful to Christ until our dying breath. This is the Christian life. It is a fight that needs to be fought. It is a race that needs finishing. It is a faith that needs protecting and a faith that we need to persevere in. And it is good because our king is good. We may wrestle with timidity and fear at times, but know this, your God will be faithful to deliver you once again from every evil deed and bring us all safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you ultimately for your example. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example as you went to the cross. We know though that your whole entire life was lived in the shadow of the cross. The path that you walked led directly to the cross. And we know, Lord, that your face was set to the cross as a stone. You neither turned to the right nor to the left. But because you loved your people, you faithfully walked. You faithfully died, bearing the wrath that we deserved. You died so that your people would live. We thank you, God, Lord Jesus Christ, for your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us be faithful, just as Paul was faithful. May we fight the good fight. May we faithfully run our race. May we faithfully protect the gospel and persevere in believing the gospel. All to the praise of your glory. Sustain us, we pray, by your strength. Help us look out not only to the devastation that we are seeing and will see, but to the souls that are suffering. We pray, God, that like, like Paul and like Timothy, you would open our mouths so that as other people suffer, we might be so compelled by the love of Jesus to offer the hope that we know is in the gospel. We know, Lord, that we are stuck oftentimes, many times, a lot of times, uh, in our rooms, looking out of our windows, looking at everything that's going on in the world. Lord, we pray that you would enlarge in our hearts. That in ways that we can, whether by letter or by text or by phone or even by talking to one another six feet apart, Lord, that you, you would be helping us be bold for you. That our if only would include being the, the if only of finishing our race and opening our mouths so that we might share with other people the hope of the resurrection in Jesus, forgiveness of sins that's found in him, and the hope that is to come as you will bring us into your eternal kingdom and grant us eternal life. Lord, as we are apart, as for First Baptist Church members, as we are apart, we pray, Lord, that you need to bind our hearts together in the Spirit, having the same Spirit of Jesus Christ and the same mission, that though we are scattered, we are together in heart, in unity, and in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
bind our hearts together so that we might care and love one another in the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.